Chapter Twenty Four of The Last of the Vikings by Johann Boyer, translated by Jesse Muir. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Twenty Four. It was a long night for Lesosulla. He had difficulty in breathing, and it was of no use for him to toss about and turn over and throw his arms about. He could neither draw his breath in nor breathe it out, and he became so afraid of being suffocated that he broke into a perspiration, though his beard was white with frost. He grew thirsty, but there was nothing to drink. The coffee-kettle was empty. He spoke to his comrades, but no one heard him. They were asleep and had no thought for anyone else. They snored and talked in their sleep and tossed about, because the cold under their backs made them continually start up from the wooden floor, but they fell back again every time, without waking. Ah, oh, if he had only one drop of water! He felt as if these comrades of his had left him in the lurch. They seemed like strangers. They threw him over because he was ill. They became his enemies. He saw now that they had always been like that, only he had not known them until now. He would have to lie here quite alone with the cold night and this illness. A fear began to grow in his mind that his last hour was coming, the dreaded hour when he would be led into the presence of God. Fancied scenes began to pass through his brain. He saw fish, abundance of fish, he saw boats that ran over the water like water spiders. Then he was going home. No, he was at home. Of course he was at home. And the room was tidy and clean, and the bed he lay in soft and warm. That was how Berit kept her house. Poor dear, are you cold? she said, and gave him hot milk and camphor brandy. You haven't a pain in your chest, have you? she said, and put a turpentine poultice on it. Hush! she said to the children, don't you see that father is ill? That is what it is like when you have people near you who care for you. Ah, oh, no, he was not at home after all. Here he lay, hundreds of miles away, and he would die here like an animal, far from both doctor and priest. He would never see Berit and the children again. If he could only breathe, oh, for a mouthful of water— Light appeared at the door. Someone had come in. His head throbbed, and everything danced before his eyes, but he was sure that someone had come in. There he is. There was a rustling of frozen clothing, and now he recognized the man. It was Yu Yunsta who was drowned off Stamsun last year. It was a dead man come to visit him. He begins to speak. Oh, dear, it's cold. Alessus, you get hoarse when you've lain a long time in the water, but now it's your turn. You'll have to come with me. Alessus tossed and turned, and threw about his hands in their woolen gloves. The man still stood there looking at him, and began to speak again. I say, Alessus, you'll soon have to stand before the Almighty's face, and now the thing is whether you've behaved to your wife as you ought to have done. No, God, forgive me. I haven't. This was more than Elesus could stand. He tried to call to his companions, but they were asleep and had no thought for him. They were strangers who would readily throw him overboard. 
What do you think will happen to you, Alessius, when you have to stand in the presence of the Almighty? Is there, is there no pardon? The Sunday before you left home, you were going to take the sacrament, but instead of that you beat Berit. Yes, that is true. And now you'll never see her again. Oh! Have you never given false witness in the court? No, no. Not that time ten years ago? Oh, but that's so old now. Have you never cheated your neighbor, nor envied him when things went well with him? Have you never made mischief between your comrades? Tell me, are you deaf? Have you come to fetch me now? The figure shook its head. Call in the priest, Elesius, it said. Try to get the sacrament before you start on your journey. It's a long way to the priest. It's farther to pardon. Elesius looked about him despairingly for help, but the men were all asleep. In the morning, when they were going out, Christophe bent down over the sick man and asked him how he was. Elesius breathed heavily, but did not answer. Christophe laid his hand upon the man's forehead, and it was burning hot. He asked him if he would like some coffee, but the other turned away his head and closed his eyes, so Christophe spread his own skin coverlet over him and went after the others. All that day Christopher said little. They were many miles from a doctor, and it would take two or three days to fetch him, supposing he would come at all, and then he would have to be taken back. He might fit up the aft compartment of the boat, and take Elesus into the hospital at Kabelvog, but it was no small matter to lose several days fishing, with such fishing as it was. As he worked, a voice within him seemed to say, what will it profit a man if he gain the whole world? Yes, that was true enough. And he promised himself that if Elesius was not better in the morning, he would go with him to Kabelvog. The boats worked more quietly today. The commander's steamer still lay in the fjord, and several inspection boats had anchored at various points. Law and justice once more prevailed on the sea, and this gave a feeling of peace. That day the commander was going to try to take up from the bottom some of the nets and lines that the fishermen had lost. He himself stood upon the bridge when the anchor was dropped into the sea. The chain cable that clanked after it was long, but at last it reached the bottom. The engines turned the screw a few times in order to drag the anchor along the bottom, and thus take up lines and nets upon its flukes. A crowd of boats had gathered round, and thousands of fishermen were anxiously watching to see what the result would be. If the great commander were able to save some of the nets and lines they had lost, he was still more of a man than they had taken him for. The windlass was set, going to wind the chain in again. It appeared to be heavy, for the axle screeched. More steam had to be turned on to prevent it from stopping. The steamer began to heel over. The windlass was on the forward deck, and now the steamer began to point her nose down. There must be a great strain upon it. 
the cable whined and screeched, the roller groaned, and the steam puffed and blew. The windlass turned more and more slowly, and the ship's bow sank lower and lower. There was certainly something heavy. The anchor was now raised a good way, but there was a new weight upon it, for the winding ceased and the steamer lay heeled over with her bow very low. More steam! The commander stood there calm and with a determined face. The crew ran backward and forward, shouting now and then to one another. The winding began again, and it was evident to all who were looking on that something heavy was coming up. The very fjords seemed to be stirred up all around them. Bubbles rose to the surface. It looked as if a whale might make its appearance at any moment. The windlass threatened to come to a standstill once more. It hauled and hauled, but the next moment stopped. More steam! At last it turned again, but slowly, overburdened, as if at any moment it might give in or break. There were more bubbles, and the water round the nearest boats was disturbed. What was coming? It must be something living. There was the anchor ring, and down in the water they could see the flukes, and hanging to them the top of a little mountain, a living mass of all kinds of fishing appliances, with fish in and on them. It rose higher and higher, a gigantic tangle of lines and nets, with long streamers descending from it, and enclosing a multitude of fish, living and dead, hundreds and hundreds of cod, and in the thickest tangle the bright gleam of herring. What was that light grey creature that was so lively? It was a springer that had become entangled in the nets. It made wild leaps in order to free itself. The windlass was still turning, but only slowly. All eyes were gazing in wonder. It was as though the very ocean were yielding up some of its mysteries. Suddenly the chain gave way. The steamer rose as if with a sigh of relief, and the mountain, with all the nets and all the fish, sank back with a great splash into the sea and disappeared into the depths leaving only innumerable rings and bubbles on the surface. The commander was calm, but his face was more determined than ever. He took the speaking trumpet, and his voice rang out over the boats. "'Don't be disheartened. Next time we'll take a stronger cable and a larger steamer.' The fishermen still sat staring, as if they could not quite believe what they had seen. It was only to have been expected, however, for— after all, a commander is nothing more than a man. End of chapter 24